Have you heard of the Song of the Sirens? High school students, maybe you've read about the sirens recently in your literature class. These mythical creatures are featured in Homer's epic, The Odyssey. Early in the story, the main character, Odysseus, received warnings about what he'd face on his journey to Ithaca. There was an island there, a magnificent place, an alluring island inhabited by sirens. These sirens would sing the most beautiful songs as sailors passed by. Their song, however, was not a free musical concert to bless passerbys. The sailors would hear the songs and it would so captivate them that it lured them. It pulled them in closer and closer. And all they could do was to steer the boat to the island right to the beautiful sirens. But there was a problem. It was all a trap. The sirens were luring the sailors to them only to be shipwrecked and drowned. Odysseus had long been intrigued with this forbidden island, too curious to simply sail around it. He needed to hear it for himself. He commanded his crew to put in some state-of-the-art beeswax earplugs in their own ears before tying him to the mast of the ship. He gave them the command not to untie him no matter how much he begs. He wanted to hear the siren's song for himself. He wanted to see what so captivated other men and drove those men to their deaths. Well, finally, the day came, the island's in view, and he hears the song. He's hypnotized. He can see the dead bones of sailors passed around the sirens, but he longs to be there. All he wants is to get to the sirens. He, he tries to loosen the rope. He begs the sailors to let him go, but they only tighten the grip. And with each passing moment, he hopes to be at the feet of the sirens, even though he knows it will lead to destruction. But the ropes hold the ship sails away, and Odysseus comes out of his spell. It's an interesting tale. Even though death loomed, he wanted nothing more to be there. Now, friends, in this tale, we have a picture of lust and the effect it could have on us. The song of the sirens at times is so strong, we have trouble fighting it off. But when we give into it, it always leads to destruction. At the very least, spiritual destruction, but often physical, emotional, and relational disaster. In today's passage, we see that none of us are immune to its allures and powers. From the lowliest servants to the greatest kings, all of us are susceptible to the song of the sirens. What seems like a beautiful song is really a death trap. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. Last week, we looked at the incredible story of mercy in David's love for Mephibosheth. I did pretty well pronouncing that name too, didn't I? Well, thankfully, I don't have to do that again, but I hope David's mercy was a kind reminder to us of God's mercy towards sinners. I also set the context for chapter 9 is happening in between two battle scenes in chapter 8 and 10. David is consolidating his kingdom. David is defeating his enemies. Here in chapter 10, we see David lead Israel in victory over the Ammonites and then later over the Syrians. And what I want to do in this video is to walk through these two chapters of text, and we'll see that the fast-paced battle-filled chapter 10 sets up the context for a slower-moving narrative, chapter 11. And I don't have a specific main point, but I, I want to simply go through the text, and then what I'll do is provide several application points at the end. But if you want a main point, I know many of us love a good main point, if that's you, you could boil it down to two words, lust kills. It kills our souls and kills those around us. But first, let's set up the context to this chapter between David's kindness and David's sin. And it actually starts with more kindness. Kindness to the Ammonite king. Look at verses 1 through 5. 
After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Well, David is being kind to Hanan because Hanan's father, Nahash, showed loyalty to a treaty he made with David at some point in the past. We don't know the specific instance, but it might have been while Saul was king and in pursuit of David. David wants to live at, at peace with his Ammonite neighbors. And while he could have used Nahash's death as a time to gain an advantage, he doesn't. Again, we have a portrait of David as a kind man. Now, David is at his best in these chapters. David sends several ambassadors to convey condolences to Hanan over his father's death. It was a nice thing to do, but the Ammonite princes aren't buying it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're paranoid. They think there's no way this is a peace offering from David. And they tell Hanan to be suspicious of David, and they do something strange. They somehow captured the men. What did they do? Well, they shaved off half of their beards and cut their garments in half. Now, personally, I like my beard. I, I love my beard. I don't want anyone shaving off my beard. I've had my beard for over 20 years, never a day without. Well, okay, there, there was this one time. There was this one time when I accidentally had the electric shaver set at zero and cut the side of my beard off. It was horrible. Thankfully, it was just the side and I had a, had a goatee for about a year. So still 20 years straight of facial hair, but it was a bit strange and embarrassing and not quite even. It was, it was what it was a half beard shaved. But this was far worse than an accidental shave. The point here was that the Ammonites humiliated the men. This action was an insult in the ancient world. A man's beard was a display of his manliness. Like I said, beards are pretty amazing. They, they're manly. So shaving half a beard was to destroy a man's reputation. And then even worse was cutting off their garments at the hips. This would have left them exposed to the public. It was an awful gesture. Well, David's first response was to guard the reputation of his men. He let them stay in Jericho to wait and grow their beards back. And I assume they were told to stop by the neighborhood H&M to get a new wardrobe before returning to Jerusalem. But the damage had been done. A peace treaty was essentially broken. Diplomatic relationships were destroyed. The Ammonites realized in verse 6 that they had become a stench, literally a bad smell to David. But rather than repent, they gather their army, thousands of soldiers, but not just their own men. They go out and they hire thousands of Syrians to help them fight. David hears of it. He sends Joab, his commander, to get, get his best men ready for battle. Verse 8, the Ammonites, they come up to fight. Joab, he sees it all unfolding. The enemy has set up men in front and behind them. He has them surrounded. The Ammonites and the Syrians have surrounded Israel. And Joab comes up with the plan quickly, decides, okay, I'm going to break up my army into two. I'll give half to my brother Abishai. There'll be, be a second team. And in verse 11, he says to his brother, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then, then you shall help me. 
But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, Joab is hardly our model of godliness in many of these battles. The the speech is a bit surprising. We almost have to do a, a double take at this text. Wait, is this really Joab? Really? Well, it is. The vindictive commander gets it right, at least here. He encourages his brother. You take courage. Let's be courageous for our people and for our God, because we know that God will do what seems good. He reminded Abishai that they had a role to play and that at the same time, let's trust God. Let's trust God because God will be the source of our victory if it's his will to give it. Now, right here in the midst of this obscure battle, we have a good reminder, don't we? We work and the Lord works, but ultimately it's God who grants the victory. His will be done. Here's a little lesson for us from a surprising source tucked away in the midst of an obscure battle scene. The two brothers, they go off into battle by faith. Joab approaches the Syrians and they flee. And when the Ammonites see that the Syrians flee, they flee from Abishai as well. It's a disaster for Israel's enemies. Everybody's fleeing. But then in verse 15, when the Syrians saw uh, that they had been defeated by Israel, they gather themselves together one more time. And look at verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And Hadad Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad, as they saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Israel's victorious. It looks like the Syrians see that the Lord is now with Israel. They're now afraid to bail the Ammonites out anymore and help them. David led Israel to victory. This is where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 10. David is right where he's supposed to be. He finishes off a pretty good 10 chapters. David is fighting for God's people. He's leading God's people. The story of the war with the Ammonites is actually going to conclude at the end of chapter 12. But here we have another pause in the narrative. Point of chapter 10, David's kindness again, his faithfulness to protect and fight for Israel. He's a king of integrity He's one who goes to battle for his people. And then in chapter 11, we see a big turn, a big change. Verse one, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Do you notice what's different here? In the past chapter, King David, he'd been involved with the battles. He was, he was at war with his men. But what do we see now? Well, it's spring. It's that time again when kings go out to battle. But David sent everyone else, all Israel, and he remained at Jerusalem. Already here at the beginning of the passage, we see that there's a problem. The king is not where he's supposed to be. His men are fighting, but the only killing David is doing is killing time. And it goes downhill from there, verses two through five. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. 
that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, David is not where he's supposed to be and he's doing what he's not supposed to be doing. He's up walking on the roof. Should he have been there? Well, we don't actually know what he was doing. But I remember 12 years ago when our family moved to a small town in a nearby Middle Eastern country, I was excited about hanging out on the roof of the house we lived in. I thought it might be a nice place to relax, to take in my new Middle Eastern views of this nice town. But thankfully, someone stopped me and told me that I shouldn't hang out on the roof because you could easily see into the people's gardens and even into their homes. And of course, this was not okay. This might have been even more true of King David. His palace would have been up on a high place and from his roof could have likely seen into many homes. What he was doing there, we don't know. But at the very least, he should have been at war. And instead, he seems to be milling around on the roof of his palace after he got up from his couch. And he sees there a woman bathing. He shouldn't be at home, probably shouldn't have been on the roof. He certainly shouldn't be looking into people's homes and watching a woman bathing. Of course not. But he lingers there. He watches her. And then he asks his servant to inquire who she is. He's told it's Uriah's wife. This couldn't be clear. This woman is already married. Not to mention, we find out later in chapter 23 that Uriah was one of David's top warriors. If anything else, that description should have stopped him right in his tracks. But even that truth couldn't stop David. He's where he shouldn't be doing what he shouldn't be doing. And he sent for her. The Hebrew reads, sent messengers and took. He took. He stole. David uses his powerful position to get what he wants. We know from other passages, including the one we've looked at the last couple of weeks, that, that David's a godly man. Those first 10 chapters here in, in 2 Samuel, he he has faith, but there's been some foreshadowing of David's problem with power and women. Scholar, my old professor, Bob Chisholm, points out that twice earlier in the book, the narrator spoke specifically of David's expanding power. And in both cases, directly afterwards, in chapters 3 and 5, the narrator also gives a report of David's women. David grew in prominence, but there seems to be a problem with him amassing wives and concubines. There was a, a regulation in Deuteronomy 17 for kings. But clearly, David's not following God's law. It's not a surprise, Chisholm says, that after great chapters of military victory and power in chapters 8 and 10, we'd have a report of David's harem. And so we do here. David goes after another man's wife. We don't know all the details of how this happened. We don't know the nature of the, the taking. But at best, it's an abuse of power and adultery, though it's likely even worse. What happens after she gets to the house? We don't know. We know David violates her. He violates God's law. He takes advantage of her. And the next thing we read is that she's pregnant. Now, those words at the end of chapter four, which mentioned, or at verse four, which mentioned that she was purifying herself, those are significant words. It means that she was ritually cleansing herself now that her seven-day period of menstrual impurity had ended. This is a small little phrase with, with big implications. One, it means that she was not pregnant prior 
to being with David. Two, sexual relations with David apparently takes place precisely at the most opportune time for conception. And three, since Uriah is off in the battlefield, he can't possibly be the baby's father. Now, this is King David's baby. Voyeurism, adultery, gross abuse of power, likely kidnapping, even assault. Let me just stop for a moment. I don't want to gloss over this or make it sound like it's no small thing. It could be easy to focus on what's next, what David does to her husband, and we'll, we'll get there. But let's not get there too quickly. Let's linger here, even though it makes us uncomfortable. I know it does for me. I wish this wasn't in the text. I mean, what's going on here? Or whatever it is, it's horrifying. If it doesn't sicken you, then you're not reading this closely. Friends, this is not okay. Now, in a few minutes, we'll talk through application on lust and how to fight it. We'll spend more of our time there because in a couple weeks, our counseling director, Josh, will speak even more specifically to those who are abused in our 1 Samuel 13 text. So I'm going to leave it to him to expand on it. But as your pastor, I do want to stop even briefly and speak to some of you who are watching. I wonder if for some of you, and when I say that, I'm speaking to men, women, teens, tweens, the elderly, anyone watching. Friend, if you've been the object of someone using their power in ungodly ways, if you've been the subject of abuse, I mourn with you today. If someone has abused their position for ungodly gain and hurt you, my, my heart weeps for you. If you've been taken advantage of, if you've had your privacy invaded, if you've been manipulated, emotionally abused, raped, embarrassed, coerced in some way, friend, I grieve with you. And I am so sorry that you faced this pain. You need to know, friend, that what's happened to you is not right. Maybe it was someone you trusted or someone who even claimed to be a believer. It's left you confused and devastated. Oh, friend, I wish, I wish I could say to you today that the pain will fully go away this side of heaven. But I can't promise that. Here's what I can say to you. And if we were sitting across the table from each other right now, here's, here's what I would say to you. Oh, friend, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you and would never hurt you. Jesus loves you and you can find solace and comfort in him. No, David wasn't a perfect king. Even the best king fell short of God's standard. We all do, but there's a greater king, one who never gave in to temptation, who never lusted for power or for others, but sought only to do his father's will. And he did it perfectly. Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He completed his mission by going willingly to that cross. He bore our burdens. He bore our sin and he bore our shame upon himself. When he died on that cross so we could have hope even in the most despairing situations on earth, he died. He died so this world isn't the final story for us. If your scars are open and you feel like you will never heal, friend, go to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. You can always find a friend in Jesus. If you've not turned to Christ in faith yet, he's waiting for you. He's patient. And you can come to him even today. There is a scar-ending day coming where our, our tears will be dried, our pain will be healed because Jesus, the true king, has made a way. Look to him. He forgives sins and he bears our burdens. We know that because on the third day after death, he raised from the dead. It gives us hope. We often talk about the cross and resurrection being the means of our forgiveness of sins, and that's true. But it's also the means for healing, hurting hearts. 
It gives us hope that a day is coming when all wrongs will be made right. Oh, friends, we have a living hope in Christ. Oh, in our passage, David is in trouble. What will he do? Will he turn to God? Will he look to him? Surely he'll get it. We think surely this chesed-filled man will get it. The abuser will get it. I, oh, friend, I only, only wish that it doesn't happen, at least not yet. Instead, he covers his tracks. David thinks he has a bright idea. Let's get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, from the battlefield. Oh, by the way, that's the place David was supposed to be himself. Let's get this faithful man back and let's give him some bonus time with his wife. Surely after being in battle, he'll want to be with his wife. And just like that, everyone, including Uriah, will think it's his baby. David must have thought he was a genius. Well, Uriah is sent back home. David asks some questions, even gives a gift. Maybe some fresh fruit, wine. Go home, Uriah, be blessed. But look at what Uriah does, verse 9 and following. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Well, David has a plan. Get everyone to think it's Uriah's baby. But there's a little itty bitty problem with this. Uriah won't go home to be with his wife. Well, sexual intimacy was a source of ritual impurity, and so it's avoided during a military campaign. We see this as well in 1 Samuel 21. This didn't make intimacy morally evil, but it was improper on such occasions. Uriah considered himself on duty, in contrast to David, who was hanging out at home during the war. Uriah's dedication led him to sleep outside at the entrance of the palace with David's servants. Not only that, he actually rebukes the king. He says, how, how can I do this when my men are at battle? They're camping. How can I go lay with my wife? If I lay with her, I won't be able to fight with my men. And more so, I'm not going to do it out of reverence for the Lord. The ark, the ark dwells out in the open. No, the Lord's honor is at stake. I mean, what a stinging rebuke. But David's not done with Uriah yet. He's still trying. Verse 13. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. <laughs> now David gets Uriah drunk. He's doing whatever he can. But see down there at the end of that verse, he still wouldn't go down to his house. David is relentless, but Uriah is relentlessly faithful. Uriah disobeys the king's command. But his defense is a reminder that loyalty to the Lord and his cause supersedes any royal authority. While Uriah understands that it's wrong to even sleep with his own wife while the army is fighting, David, in fact, commits sexual immorality with another man's wife during all of this. No, Uriah's actions and faith are admirable. Uriah is a picture of faithfulness and dedication here in this chapter. But that faithfulness will lead to disaster because of David's desperation. David goes to drastic measures. Look down at verse 14. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may die, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David fell among the people. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. When Uriah's walk back to the battle is actually a death march. It's ironic that Uriah actually carries with him the death order to the commander. It's an absurd plan, isn't it? David asking Joab to command all the soldiers except Uriah to retreat, to back up at a specific time so that Uriah, he stands there isolated before the enemy. Well, sadly, David is following in the footsteps of Saul who tried to kill David by sending him on a difficult mission against the Philistines in 1 Samuel 18. Now, all goes to plan here. All the men, they withdraw, they back up, they get out of the way at a certain point. Uriah, he doesn't have the message and he's killed there in the front lines in battle. Others are killed too. It's a tragic plan. It gets several soldiers killed. Joab's a bit worried about the report because of those other men who are killed, but, but David doesn't care. He's got a callous response to Joab. You know, Joab, it's tough. Sometimes men die in battle. Clearly, David was concerned about one matter, one person. Did Uriah die? David gets the message, the deed is done. Bathsheba gets the message in verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Maybe you notice that the text won't even call her Bathsheba after the initial acknowledgement of her name. She's just been the wife of Uriah. That's no accident in the text. David went and brought the wife of Uriah into his house. He took her. And just in case we didn't know the obvious at this point, the text tells us what we already know, that David has displeased the Lord. In the span of one chapter, David breaks all sorts of Ten Commandments, coveting, uh, adultery, there's, there's murder, or you could also throw in theft, and I'm not sure where, where spying and lying and, and getting someone drunk falls on the chart, but it's not good. How then could David represent Israel as their king? What will the Lord do? Well, back in chapter 7, he made a promise to work in and through David as the king. There's now a tension in the book. What will we see throughout the rest of 2 Samuel? We're going to see both mercy from the Lord toward David, but we're also going to see that David faces drastic consequences for his sin. David is going to face all kinds of pain as a result. He doesn't get away with it. There will be suffering for his sin. And we'll get to David's response next week. And then we'll see the consequences in the weeks after. But for now, this narrative just ends here with God's displeasure. The text doesn't actually tell us what Bathsheba is thinking the whole time. We don't know what's going through Uriah's mind or even Joab, but we know that David was in a downward spiral in his lust. And I think the narrator wants us to see the gravity of David's sin and to linger in its aftermath. Well, as we walk through a disturbing passage, Redeemer Church, what can we learn from this? Well, I want to spend the last portion of this sermon looking at 10 brief applications. I normally sprinkle kind of applications throughout my sermons, but instead I've left most of it for here at the end. We've, we've walked through this passage, and now let's look at what it has to teach us specifically about lust, about power. I could say more, 
Uh, but I've boiled it down to 10 things. Number one, acknowledge your weakness. None of us is immune to sin, even lust. You may think, yo, you have no problem with it now. You may be doing well. You may be having victory. But don't think you're so above it that you could never struggle with it. If the greatest king can fall, so can you. I remember my first youth pastor say that on any trip, he was capable of adultery and needed accountability and prayer. I was stunned at the time. I was 17 years old. I was a brand new believer. I remember what he said even today, and I'm thankful, though, for his transparency, that we need to acknowledge our weakness and be on guard always. Well, number two, watch your eyes. Be sure that what you look at is good for your soul. Eve saw that the fruit was good. She didn't take her eye off it. David saw that Bathsheba was very beautiful. He didn't bounce his eyes off of what he was viewing. Neither of them did. For us, it could be television. It could be the internet. It could be at the shopping malls. We need to watch our eyes and not linger where they shouldn't be looking. Isaiah, Isaiah tells us in chapter 33 of his book, the one who shuts his eyes from looking on evil will dwell on heights. Matthew tells us, Jesus tells us, the pure in heart shall see God. This is why Job made a covenant with his eyes, a promise with his eyes not to gaze on women inappropriately. Let's not dwell on sinful images, but use them as a reminder to bounce our eyes and our thoughts and our affections onto the Lord. Like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, at the very moment of temptation, he ran at, for David. His first glance at Bathsheba, he should have bounced his eyes from her onto the Lord. He should have repented. He should have packed up his battle gear and gone to war. You ask yourself, what am I looking at? What am I putting myself in, in situations? What situations am I putting myself in? If you're putting yourself in tough situations of temptation, then get out. And number three, consider sin's consequences. My friend Garrett Kell often reflects on one of the most helpful chapels at our seminary when this, where the speaker challenges the students to fight sin by envisioning the end of your sin. And what he means by that is to think now about the consequences of your sin if you go through with it. Garrett encourages all of us to think about that personally, to apply it to our own lives, to think about the consequences of, in this case, adultery. Who would we need to confess to? What would that experience be like? What would the reaction be of our spouse, our kids, our friends, the tears in their eyes, the looks of betrayal, the relational fallout as the word spreads? How would your loved ones be impacted? How about your fellow church members? How would your relationship with God be impacted? Friends, envision the end of your sin now. Adultery doesn't start today. It never starts today. It always begins with a hundred little compromises. By God's grace, I've never had to do this, but I've walked with those who've had to confess. And believe me when I tell you, friends, it's not worth it. Sin will destroy, adultery will destroy. Sin doesn't tell you about the consequences, does it? It always overpromises and it delivers nothing. It delivers nothing lasting. Sin doesn't tell you that it's going to cost your soul. It promises sweetness, but it always leaves a bitter aftertaste. Well, number four, obey God and do the next right thing. Do the next right thing right now. For David, he shouldn't have been there. He should have been on the battlefield and then not on the roof and then not looking, etc. We could go on and on and on. One sin led to another sin, led to another sin. Do the next right thing that's there right in front of you. And when I read this passage, I always think of my good friend James. We, we always see him each time we go back to our home country. James's last name is actually King. His name is James King. James King and I went to university together. We walked with God together in the early days of our faith. There was even a season, several months, 
where we'd wake up really, really early in the morning and we'd go running together and then pray. It was exhausting, but a memorable time in our lives. And I remember James King had an email address back then uh, in uni, and it was, when kings go to war, when kings go to war, that's always been a reminder to me, do the right thing. Go to war when you're supposed to be at war. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it helped contribute to his wrong actions. Well, number five, kill your sin. Don't let it linger. If you have a big tarantula spider as a pet, bless you. But I'm not sure I could sleep at night knowing there's a humongous spider in my house. And I put it there. That's, that's, that's crazy talk, sure. You make sure it's in its cage, but we've all heard the story of the spider who gets out and bites its owner. You can't let sin just linger around or else it's going to come back to bite you. The longer you let it linger, the more chance you have that it's going to suffocate you. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death. Put to death, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. John Owen said it this way, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. Sin will kill you. Sin is not your friend. It's not your pet. Get rid of it. Cut it off. Kill it. If you can't watch television without sinning, get rid of your subscriptions. If you can't surf the internet on your phone, then get an accountability software. Tell your friends, tell your pastor, or even get rid of your phone. Your phone is not worth your soul. This is what Jesus means when he said, cut off your right eye. You do whatever it takes to put sin to death. Number six, don't try and hide from God. Adam and Eve attempted to cover up their sin with a couple fig leaves. Here, in an effort to retain power, David desperately scrambles to cover up his crimes. It seems like he's gotten away with it. And then we see that last phrase, it displeased the Lord. Looked like the Lord was absent in, the, in this chapter. There was no prayer, there's no consultation, no worship, only sin. And just when we think maybe David is gonna get away with it, we see the Lord knows. The Lord sees it all. He may be quiet, but he's never absent. Psalm 139 reminds us that even if we flee to the ends of the earth uh, or hide in the darkness, we can't escape God's gaze. Psalm 11 says that the Lord sees from his heavenly throne all the earth. He sees it all. Number seven, get help quickly when you fall into sin. What if David had gone up to the roof, saw what he saw, but then he went in and he confessed to his brothers, he confessed to God, and he asked for forgiveness. Now, instead, David was adding sin upon sin upon sin. Now, sin is bad, but the cover-up is even worse or often worse. The cover-up is often worse than the original sin. Friend, if you're struggling in sin, get help before you just dig a deeper hole. Talk to a friend. Come to one of the elders. Do it today. We as pastors, we often get word about an issue or a sin so late in the struggle. Marriage is already falling apart. Addictions beyond control. Now confess and get help today. Number eight, Pray for your leaders. Oh, pray for us. Pray that we would never abuse power. Pray that we would never seek to cover up sin. Pray that we would not fall prey to the traps of sin. We are not immune. I, as your pastor, I am not immune. Pray for me. Pray for your elders. Pray that we would stay close to Jesus. Pray that we would walk with him. Number nine, feed your affection. So church, no one eats a bucket of filling popcorn before they know they'll be offered a free steak dinner. What does the popcorn do before a tenderloin filet? It only stuffs you with, with empty calories. You're too full to enjoy the real thing. It, it zaps your appetite. No, when we're aware of an upcoming steak dinner, we skip lunch. We get ready to feast. Friends, pursue purity and feast on the real thing. Feast on God. Enjoy Him. He's far better than the lure of the sirens who want you to think that the popcorn is, is the best it gets. Read God's Word. 
Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, by guarding it according to his word. Read his word. Read it. Pray. Fast like we did as a church this summer and listen to good preaching. Join the church. Sing. Enjoy God's creation. Fellowship with other believers. Read good books. Think about heaven. Feed your affections. And number 10, look to God's grace. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not some, not part, but all unrighteousness. And Psalm 103.11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards doors, those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. No matter who you are, friend, or what you've done, you can always look to God's grace. So Jesus' death on the cross is an offer for the forgiveness of sins, for the, for the worst sinner. Now hear me say this, our sin can't outdo God's grace. Jesus' blood was shed for adulterers and murderers. Now whatever you did last year, last month, or last night, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and he will forgive you. How oh, his mercy is more, friends. His grace is greater than all of our sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I get so excited thinking about your grace. After a sermon, looking at such wicked sin, wicked abuse of power, and even murder, it's sobering, it's heartbreaking, it's even confusing. But Lord, when we hear about your grace, we are, we are undone. When we consider your mercy, our heart melts. Lord, would you be gracious today with the abused, with those that are hurting, with those that have, that have been hurt, with those whose wounds are open today? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Lord, would you heal? Would you comfort? And for the abusers, for those who have abused, for those adulterers, for those struggling with lust, for those struggling with pornography, for those, oh Lord, who have broken your commandments, those right now who are feeling the conviction of sin. Lord, praise God for your spirit at work. We pray for repentance and we pray for faith. Oh Lord, would you make our church a pure body? A body that would be marked by purity and godliness and holiness and confession and repentance. Oh Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.